When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi everyone, Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Which Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Hannah McGregor. And hot dog, do I love it when we have a guest. Ooh, me too. Today, dear listeners, our guest is Kay Alexandra. Pronouns, very excited to share with you. She, her, hers, and y'all. Noted... <laughs> by some as an HP trivia queen, but additionally is an educator, activist, a member of communities such as Black Girls Create, Black Hotties at Hogwarts, Fandom Forward, and Wizards in Space Literary Magazine. Hello. Welcome, Kay Alex. Hey, y'all. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. It is a delight to have you here. I would really love us to get started by finding out a bit more about you in the sorting chat. So first question, and there's a real hint of it right there in your bio, but let's start with <laughs> what's your relationship to the Harry Potter series? <laughs> would you call yourself a fan? Oh, would I call myself a fan? That's such a loaded word these days. I'm kind of like, do I walk around with a bag on my head or? <laughs> In the most lighthearted terms, yes, I am a fan. HP was that seminal text. I grew up with Harry, Hermione, and Ron. When they turned 11, so did I. And that's how I made friends. It's how I grew community. That was the thing that held us together in lunchrooms and in chat rooms. And I feel kind of cheated because I never found these great communities until I was an adult. I attended LeakyCon for the first time in 2018. And I was walking around and I was meeting a lot of my Black Girls Create friends for the first time. And I was like, wait. 
people have been attending a Harry Potter convention for years and nobody told me. (laughs) Oh no, everybody's been having fun without me. And as an Enneagram 4, FOMO is my worst fear. I'm like, (laughs) fine. Absolutely fine. Not hurt at all. So if you're a long-term fan, do you identify with a particular house? Yes, I am a Ravenclaw through and through. Blue and bronze all the way. Though my friends will out me and say, well, you just became a Luna fan like three weeks ago. And I'm like, nobody needs to know that. (laughs) I'm reformed. People can change. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's the whole thing is that we are allowed to have complex and evolving relationships to the pop culture that matters to us. That's uh, it's like a uh, whole premise. <laughs> okay, one last important fandom question before we get into the, you know, the serious <laughs> content. What's your Patronus? It is a white stallion. <laughs> oh, <laughs> fancy. So good. Already having such a great time. predictable pedagogical fashion, why don't we start off with what we already know in revision? While this is our first episode that is explicitly about critical race theory, it certainly isn't our first episode about race. We've pointed to race as being a central theoretical context in so many of our other readings, Orientalism, Animal Studies, Celebrity, The Gothic, just to name a few, that it would be impossible to fully summarize everything we've said in those episodes here. So instead, we're going to trace one thread through a few of our different episodes. And that thread is intersectionality. So we introduced the concept of intersectionality for the first time in our discussion of class way back in episode four. Four, when we quoted Kianga Yamada Taylor, a professor of African-American studies at Princeton University and a revolutionary Marxist who writes, quote, capitalism is a system based on the exploitation of the many by the few. Because it is a system based on gross inequality, it requires various tools to divide the majority. Racism and all oppressions under capitalism serve this purpose, end quote. So we can see right away that Taylor is insisting on the impossibility of talking about class without also talking about race. Intersectionality came up again when we looked at Audre Lorde's work in our episode on feminist literary theory. Audre Lorde reminds us that the interrelatedness of oppression means that popular narratives, like the monomyth, assume the heroism of white, able-bodied, middle-class, heterosexual, cisgender men to the exclusion of anyone else, and especially to the exclusion of Black, disabled, poor, queer, trans women, and non-binary folks. Feminism is inherently intersectional, contrary to what a number of Karens would have us believe, as we learned is queer theory, because we can't understand queerness as a concept without connecting it to race and gender. 
And race also came up repeatedly in our discussions of animal studies, in which we've looked at how the boundaries between the human and the animal are ideological constructions that have been used to perpetuate anti-Black racism in particular, a point that's going to be especially important as we take a look at the treatment of house elves in this book. Intersectionality is, unsurprisingly, a pretty foundational concept, so we're going to spend some time unpacking it in the next segment. But before we get there, let's ground ourselves specifically in Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire by asking why it is that this book in particular invites a reading through the lens of critical race theory. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that there's a few reasons why we chose this to be sort of the first book that we explicitly brought critical race theory in. And I think sort of one of the one of the launching points for us is that scene at the Quidditch World Cup where we see the muggles being tortured and then Malfoy threatens Hermione. And that moment of explicit threat to Hermione and the way that she is positioned in that moment as like legible as muggle-born and subject to heightened vulnerability in this dangerous situation as a result of that really, I think, made... Marcel, both of us think about putting this book in conversation with like the very popular fan reading of Hermione as a Black character. Yeah, absolutely. It's also the first time that you see Death Eaters tormenting the wizarding community, even though metaphorically it's mask off, literally it's mask on. It's no incident that the Death Eaters are meant to look like clan members. And Draco having this public threat to Hermione is the public foil from the threats that he was making privately in Chamber of Secrets. This is kind of the step to the racial tension and the escalation of the Death Eaters. Yeah, yeah. And we've seen this escalation through the series leading up to this point where, like, it's very comparatively small microaggressions towards Hermione in the first book. And then it escalates with Draco starting to, like, use slurs in front of other students. And now it's escalated further to, like, public acts of violence. And we get this through line of the sort of gradual emboldening of anti-muggle violence. Do you think that that way that Hermione is positioned as being sort of subject to this this gradually emboldened violence, is that tied into why she is frequently read by the fandom as Black? Oh, absolutely. And even if we wanted to stay in the traditional aesthetic of Emma Watson, because she's a great actress, and I also realize that white people need to see themselves in narratives to actually be empathetic to them. <laughs> Very generous of you. Wow. <laughs> you know what? It's true, and it sucks. It's a, it's a sucky truth, but HP gives us a lot of sucky truths, and it makes us better people when we name those truths and we talk about them honestly. Mm. Yes. Ah, mm. oh, oh, I want to put it on a t-shirt. You know, just put my name at the bottom. Have it. I absolutely cite my sources. But when Black people and people of color tell white people that you have known a racist all your life, that's not a statistical lie. We've 
pulled out of our hats. It's the absolute truth. It happens. And because it goes unchecked at the smallest points, because you believe that it's not going to escalate, that it can't get worse. And it makes you uncomfortable at its beginning because when you're checking it at the end, it's all performative. Somebody is seeing you stop violence, but nobody is seeing you question, okay, why are you using the N-word? Why are you asking about her hair? Why do you need to know where I'm from? Why are you mispronouncing their name? Which is also why one of the biggest cinematic losses is when Mr. Weasley punches Lucius Malfoy because it is the first time that we see a white man punch a fellow white man for being racist. Yeah. Oh my God. I never thought about that before. That is a really like... Like, when we attend to the forms of violence that Hermione experiences throughout the series through this sort of critical race reading lens, then those moments of disruption that often come from the Weasleys also gain a different kind of significance. That they are stepping in, in a context in which it seems like everybody else around them is really just willing to let it slide. Or do not have the power that the Weasleys have to check even more powerful families like the Malfoys. They're members of the Sacred 28. And again, the intersectionality of race and class, right? The Weasleys' only weak point is that they are poor. But you see in the same book, too, Ron tries to attack Draco for even saying the word mudblood. And again, you get white men standing up to other white men for being racist. So white men standing up to other white men, but also there is this really important through line in this book, which is Hermione, like, awakening to her latent activism. And when that comes up, the white men around her are wildly disrespectful. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And mediocre at best in their thinking and (laughs) just lackluster in their approach. But I say this because there's no other way to say it. Ron wants to be wealthy and having a house elf is a sign of wealth. Mm. Oh, that's so important in understanding that like the complexity of what happens at the Quidditch World Cup where we see Hermione witnessing how Winky is being treated and abused. Her response being, and this is something I'd like to tease out a little bit more, maybe in a later segment, but the very close timing of Draco's threat to Hermione, and then, like, the next page is where she explicitly names the treatment of house elves as slavery. And so thinking about, like, how the text ties those things together, and then watching the way that, like, on the one hand, Ron is willing to to defend her, but on the other hand, his class anxiety prohibits him from seeing what she sees in the treatment of the house elves. Oh, Absolutely. Okay, Alex, can you talk to us a little bit about what it means to read Hermione is Black and um, the ways in which the fandom has sort of 
picked up on that and and drawn on that, we didn't really get a chance to get into that. Oh, absolutely. In fact, I wrote an essay for Black Girls Creates called My Minister's Been Black, an analysis of how Hermione is presented as Black throughout the series and how the author's active choice to cast a Black actress for The Cursed Child shows a Black savior complex because now Hermione is Minister of Magic in a time of basically political reconstruction for the wizarding world. And it reads very much as Black women will save us, which we do a lot. Um, But I try my best to ground the questions in the actual assignment. I'm a babbler, if you can't tell. With Goblet of Fire and the Yule Ball in particular, Hermione straightens her hair for the first time and in black culture this is called your first perm and it's basically a chemical relaxer that is meant to straighten and soften your hair and it typically happens around the age of 13 14 years old every black girl who's ever gotten a perm can remember that white creamy lie sitting in your hair hoping to get it to assimilate to what is the standard of beauty. Um, And we get that with Hermione actually names the product. It's called Sleekeezy's Straightening Solution or something like that. And ironically enough, this is the solution that made Harry's family rich. Absolutely incredible. Whoa. His grandfather was the maker and founder of Sleekeasy Straightening Solution. It's the reason why Harry has all this gold in his vault. This is incredible. I did not know this. I am shocked. Shocked, but not surprised. (laughs) Yeah, no. (laughs) And so when we see Hermione do this grand entrance and everybody is like, oh, now she's beautiful. Now she's this. It's like, welcome to white acceptance, Hermione. And every Black girl that has grown up surrounded by white people has had this experience at some point or another. It could be in the classroom. It could be in the boardroom. It could be at summer camp. It could be at a school dance. I mean, school dances seem to be very appropriate because that's when white boys have to wrestle with, oh, am I attracted to Black girls? Do I see them as human as people as more than just homework help and a a fetish basically because they also put the emphasis on Padma and Pavati I think and please excuse me if I'm saying that incorrectly but it's noted heavily that they are the prettiest girls in the year and of course you get this fetishization of twins as well And you kind of see this happen with almost every non-white girl in the school. Harry only settles for going with Pavani because Cho is going with Cedric. It's it's interesting. Our Mercedes Ang, who was uh, an earlier guest on the podcast, pointed to a narrative trope in which Asian women are often treated as, quote unquote, starter girlfriends, that in narratives, they will be like the first romantic interest of the protagonist before the protagonist moves on to settle down with 
a white woman. So that just becomes another example of the way that these racialized female characters in the book are being sort of used in order to tell us something about the gradual maturing of the male characters. Absolutely. And in fact, we only see a Black girl get approached appropriately in canon on one occasion. And it's when Fred asks Angelina to the Yule Ball. Mm. And I feel like as much as I, I love that couple and I, want, and I wanted more of that couple, the only reason why it happened is because, one, JK does not have the range to write quality racial relationships. And two, it would have been too cliche for Lee and Angelina to end up together. But it also showed the Weasleys again in this positive light of we like who we like, we love who we love, and we really don't care who has a problem with it, which great for what that stands for. But we are moving very rapidly, thank God, from a point of diversity for diversity's sake. And Black and brown people are no longer marginalized people, disabled, queer, Jewish, are no longer accepting just having a character that looks like them doing nothing in a book or in any piece of media. And it's really telling that J.K. can capitalize off of Hermione being Black, but she cannot canonize her as Black. And she cannot have truthful conversation about what Hermione's Blackness meant for the entirety of the series. Mm, Really important distinction between, like, being able to publicly take the, like, liberal stance of, like, well, I never said she wasn't Black in the books without actually standing behind, like, yes, this is a Black character. Let's think about how that should inform the way that we read her. Oh, absolutely. Because... I also believe that if Hermione had actually been canonized as Black, she would have called to account Harry and Ron's bullshit a lot more often. Yeah. The canonically Black characters in the book are only ever side characters who do not have, you know, a rich backstory, a central role to play. And it's their proximity to conflict or comedy that keeps them in the light. Like, in Goblet of Fire, it takes a moment for you to realize that Angelina is also old enough to be the Triwizard Champion. And then you start to think about, okay, like, the movie and the books both heavily focus on Gryffindor versus Slytherin. No disrespect to our Robert Pattinson fans at all, and no disrespect to our Cedric lovers, but I'm like, where did this Hufflepuff glory boy come from? Who, what does he stand for? Why is he here? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I think he stands for blamelessness. And that really hits the nail on the head because in our society, white men and women are the only perfect victims. You are making so many super vital points here. And I am really excited to dig further into this. And I think 
it might be about time for us to uh, to get a little bit more theory under our belts. What do we think? With this foundation beneath us, it's time to layer on a little more theory in Transfiguration Class, the segment where we and you learn something new. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. So we're going to start today just with a brief introduction to critical race studies as a field, particularly because this very field has been extremely in the news lately. Who'd have thunk that we would be recording this episode right when critical race theory became a real newsworthy item? So right now, which is the summer of 2021, across the United States, lawmakers are attempting to create legislation that would limit the teaching of concepts like systemic racism and white supremacy. And frequently, that legislation explicitly names critical race theory as the thing that you are not allowed to teach. Like, universities are getting emails going out to all of the faculty saying, please report to us if you teach critical race theory in your courses. That's bananas. Yeah, it's absolutely bananas. And so there's a conversation happening right now about what critical race theory is and why it is perceived as such a threat. And so I thought we should start by pausing here to actually say, what is this field? An important piece of context for critical race theory is that it emerged in conversation with critical theory in general. Critical theory is a way of looking at power and oppression and how they operate structurally and systemically within society and culture, rather than focusing on individual people or individual actions. At the heart of critical theory is the idea that structures and we might also say systems, often matter more than individual choices. So we might think back to our metaphor episode where we talked about the one bad apple metaphor that often gets used in relation to policing. So the one bad apple metaphor focuses on individual actions. It's an individual critique of an individual person who individually does something that we don't approve of. Critical theory, by contrast, would insist instead that we look at the ways policing works structurally to maintain existing racial, sexual, and class hierarchies in our society. So, because critical theory is an inherently Marxist concept, there's a lot of animosity towards this kind of thinking in capitalist, individualistic, neoliberal societies. Yeah, one day we're going to do an episode about the Frankfurt School and like the importing of Marxism into Western academia. 
But today is not that day. You're just going to take our word for the idea that critical theory is inherently Marxist because it was invented by a bunch of Marxists. So critical race theory sought to intervene into the individualization of racism by looking instead at racism as a system or systemic racism, which is probably a term a lot of people have heard. So systemic racism thinks about racial oppression as a system that had not much to do with individuals' good or bad feelings, but about the actual sort of structures that have been put in place to perpetuate racial inequality. So one of the foundational thinkers in this field, which was sort of emerging in the 70s and 80s, was Kimberly Crenshaw, who is perhaps best known for developing the concept of intersectionality. Crenshaw, who is a legal scholar, still working today, very, very well-respected academic, was explicitly interested in structures of oppression within the legal system. And the sort of case study through which she originally developed the concept of intersectionality was looking specifically at how Black women were failed by anti-discrimination laws that focused exclusively on race or gender, rather than recognizing the unique forms of discrimination that targeted Black women in particular. A really key intervention that critical race studies offers is its focus on how racism is systemic and institutionalized. So what that means is that racism is more likely to be embedded in cultural norms, laws, housing policies, budget decisions, zoning, etc., rather than being articulated overtly as a belief or principle. So when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about the term revitalize, for example, which is a great example of the ways that language allows policymakers to mask the racist and classist consequences of for example, how a city council spends its money. So revitalizing the downtown will inevitably involve a lot of racist and classist decisions and consequences, but the language itself is benign. And so the racism is embedded in the budget decision and the and the zoning as opposed to, say, an overt principle where city councillors run on a platform of racism and classism, for example. So our cultural tendency to focus almost exclusively on, say, sensational forms of racial violence actually reproduces a sense that those extreme acts are exceptional and unprecedented, rather than the logical consequences of these seemingly benign social, cultural, and political systems. To understand how structural racism operates then, we need to look to the systems that perpetuate and reinforce it and focus on changing those systems. It's not enough to simply call out racist politicians. There's more to the incorporation of racism in the society that we live in than people's overt political positions. It's this thing where individual white people love to say, I don't have a racist bone in my body. Um, and the point is that racism isn't in your bones, it's in your your systems, it's in your institutions. Like whether or not you think that you personally are racist is 
deeply irrelevant because you are complicit and embedded in a white supremacist society and your own feelings about that are not the point at all. But this idea of racism as a system in which we are collectively entangled and collectively complicit, that's what right-wing legislation is attempting to disrupt. So a particular point of contention right now around this conversation about critical race studies in the U.S. has been the New York Times Pulitzer Prize-winning 1619 Project, which was directed by Nicole Hannah-Jones, which is an absolutely remarkable project, sort of rethinking the history and present of American culture by marking the introduction of slavery as the nation's true beginning. And the project is fundamentally engaged with critical race theory as a way of understanding history. It's basically like, it's impossible to understand the contemporary racial politics of the United States without grounding them in the history of the transatlantic slave trade. That's like a fundamental argument that the project's making. And critiques of the project are accusing uh, Hannah Jones of putting ideology before historical fact, which is... Hopefully our listeners at this point recognize that the idea that there's such a thing as history outside of ideology is a fundamentally fabricated idea. Like, the history and the stories we tell about history are inherently ideological. Mm-hmm. So, Calix, this idea of race as a system that we are entangled in is totally at the heart of the kinds of interventions that you have been pointing to, right? That, like, it's much less about being able to point at an individual, a Draco Malfoy type, and say, well, that guy sucks, but if we get rid of him, smooth sailing. Oh, yeah. And again, with the progression and the escalation of racial violence in the wizarding world, of course, the individuals are introduced before systems, right? Because systems have always been there and they've always been constructed to convenience the few over the many. So even with my example of how I'm trying to uh, reevaluate ableism in my life, I had to think about, okay, I am one of the few that is being convenienced. but I'm only convenienced because the system has already constructed it for my convenience. And most people are not uncomfortable. They're uncomfortable by two things. One, realizing that they have to evaluate themselves. And two, realizing that they have to revamp a system. Oh, yes. Both hard. And revamping a system means means that you have to get a lot of people involved and a lot of people willing to admit that they've been complicit in being convenienced. It's the reason why Draco comes before Umbridge, because Draco is an individual, but Umbridge represents a system. And it's Hermione that realizes Umbridge infiltrating means that the system is about to be disrupted. Hermione stands out as a character who is capable of systems thinking much earlier than I would say sort of any of the other children protagonists. Of course. And even at our most basic ages, Black children are taught to think that way. And we're taught to anticipate 
the moment that the system will turn against us. Yeah. So there's this required early education and how these systems work as a survival strategy. Absolutely. Because assimilation is a byproduct of survival. Mm. And that's also the, the thing, too. Black and brown people in these narratives can't just exist. They have to be making themselves useful. It's the reason why house elves have their own brand of magic. It's the reason why they run pretty much every big institution. They run Hogwarts. They run the ministry. Even though goblins and house elves are very different, they run the banking system. And again, this is a this is a fundamentally structural critique, which is so important here, right? That what you are noticing and attending to is the way these institutions have been designed. How has the banking institution been designed? How has the schooling institution been designed? You know, what systems underpin the logics of these institutions operating in the way that they do? And how is it that the operations of these institutions is invisible to so many and hyper-legible to others. Right. While critical race theory does focus more on the system than it does on individuals, we also have to think about how individuals capitalize on the system protecting them or enforcing or giving them power that was not earned. For example, Lucius Malfoy has no steady gainful employment throughout this entire series. (laughs) What does that guy even do? How does he contribute to society? I would like to know. He does not. (laughs) But he has the ear of the ministry and he sits on the Hogwarts board of directors. How? How, Sway? (laughs) Outside of being a lusciously locked white man. How? It makes me think of, of how many white male in particular, but not exclusively, characters we see failing up in this series. Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But going back to that system previously, because education is the system that we pretty much start to see where the the curtain starts to pull back and things start to unravel. And, you know, this grown reptilian man is attacking a 15-year-old child. Sorry, who's the grown reptilian man? Voldemort. Oh, yeah, okay. (laughs) Voldemort. (laughs) I was like, is there a snake man in these books that I don't remember? Yeah, there is. It's the bad guy. Sorry, everyone. Last up, it's time to put our new knowledge to the test in Owls. Building on your point, Kay Alex, about J.K. Rowling not being a particularly analytical or critical thinker, it has me thinking about the way that she uses metaphors to stand in for real-world systemic issues. So like, yes, real world issues that her as a rich white woman can ignore until it's time for her to capitalize on them. Exactly. And so one of the things that I'm I'm wondering if you can talk about a little bit is the house elves as 
metaphors for enslavement. And then we also have muggle-borns and muggles as metaphors for racialized people. And yeah, I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about like how we might approach these metaphors through a, a critical race lens. One of the core members of Black Girls Create, uh, Portia, as well as one of my fellow board members on Fandom Forward, brought up a really critical point as to why Hermione did not immediately start to activate about the treatment of muggle-born students at Hogwarts. And instead, focusing on the treatment of house elves and... I think it is because, one, the treatment of muggles and muggle-borns would have immediately made her public enemy number one versus house-elf treatment would have garnered a bit of sympathy as well as the option for wizards who do not own house-elves or who do not interact with house elves on a daily basis to opt out and not feel bad. Because how is Seamus going to be Dean's best friend and not stand up for muggle-born rights? And the thing about it is, is like we don't even have enough examples of muggle-born students at Hogwarts to even talk about the nuanced relationships that they had with pure-blood and half-blood students at Hogwarts because we only get four, really. Harry, Hermione, Dean Thomas, and Snape. And the other folks that are attacked in the Chamber of Secrets, but we know so little about them and how they are treated by other students at Hogwarts because we know how they're treated by Malfoy and the Slytherins, but we don't really see how they interact with polite white society. Meanwhile, with the house elves, you do get Dobby, Creature, and Winky having these conversations about what does it mean to be paid? What does it mean to uh, have PTSD from the separation of your master? What does it mean to see your master change his mind? So this point you're making right now, Kay Alex, really brings us to, like, I think one of the one of the key things that we need to read through the lens of critical race theory in this book, which is Hermione's activism and the way that it relates to what the book is telling us about house elves. I think maybe let's start with looking a little bit more at how Winky is treated as a character. And then I want to also maybe talk a little bit more about how Hermione's activism and spew is represented. But let's talk a little bit about Winky, right? Because we've only met Dobby before so far. And now we have this new house elf and like everything about Winky is like she loves being a house elf and freedom is a punishment. Mm-hmm. That obviously comes from a, a voice of trauma. And it also comes from a very white voice of, well, slavery was a good thing because it gave people purpose. That there were slaves after the Emancipation Proclamation who stayed on the plantation and did not know what else to do and obviously needed guidance. And it is one of the most 
disgusting readings of slavery. Of course, as a kid, it's like, oh, poor Winky, she's going through it. But as an adult, it's absolutely horrifying to see somebody justify slavery in this way. And to think that such a highly intelligent creature such as Winky could not break from the bonds of being manipulated, being abused, being just maladapted in every form. My ancestors and the ancestors of all people that come from slaves were not helpless. They were survivors. And I know Rowling deals in a lot of binaries in her book, in her series. Gryffindor versus Slytherin, good versus evil, where Dobby is supposed to be the light and Creature is supposed to be the dark and Winky is supposed to be the gray area. But she fails at understanding that Winky was not an individual. Winky was a product of a system. And because you made it the onus of your one somewhat Black girl in your series to take on the, the burden of breaking up that system practically alone you give it a god-awful name and you make her seem like she's this haphazard, misguided white savior instead of somebody who's constantly analyzing the wizarding world is fucked up. And you guys are supposed to have all this magic, all this power all of these resources to make the world a better place and you choose to hide and you choose to build your world off of the backs of creatures that don't even feel the need to defend themselves. Yeah. What really struck me as I was as I was rereading this time around is the intensity with which everyone around Hermione repudiates the very premise of house elf liberation. There isn't even a sympathetic ear, somebody who sort of gets where she's coming from, but wants to point to the complexity or the challenges. There isn't even somebody who's kind of a little bit on board. Like, everyone at the house elves. I totally agree. And I and I want to believe that Hagrid's approach is more in in the approach that he would a dragon or hippogriff or any other animalistic creature that he loves so much that he does not want to harm anything that seems to be going against its very nature. And I think that that's one of the biggest cons that white people told themselves about slavery is that enslavement was a part of our very nature. And it's like, who would a house elf be if they did not have to be a slave? What would they be doing? How would they participate in magical society? We never get to see that because, of course, the next step up is indentured servitude. Dobby is still doing the same work. He's just being paid. Being paid poorly at that. And we've got a hint of what might be possible for house elves 
when we are reminded that their magic is very powerful and that they are forbidden from even touching wands. And that sense of like, there is underneath the the representation of house elves as wanting to be enslaved. There is this implied threat that if not controlled by these institutions, what would they be capable of? What would their powerful magic be able to do? It's really funny that you put it like that because in that very instance, a wand immediately represents education. I never thought of wands as representing education before. That's such a smart read. <laughs> I just, that's never, it's just never occurred to me. But of course, it's the thing that marks your entrance into the school. And so it is this like icon of access to a powerful form of literacy. And we know that literacy and education are like the most dangerous things that an oppressed people can possibly seize control over. And it shows up again when you think about house elves, at least according to the series, have no history. Nobody knows how they're born, where they come from, their origins how they do anything beyond service white wizard supremacy. And they're even written out of the histories of the wizarding world. Yeah, they're written out of the histories of the wizarding world. They have one small representation in the Fountain of Magical Brethren. And the classes in which a wizard might even learn about somebody or something outside of himself is taken as a complete joke. History of magic is an absolute snooze fest. Mm. Mm. Yeah, history. It's the class that nobody learns anything in. And muggle studies is written off as a joke. Which ties for me back to the, the, the degree to which people have been outraged by the 1619 Project. Because actual history when actually taught and understood, is the most radicalizing topic. Yeah. And these are the classes that are meant to be holding up a mirror to society itself to show you, one, you're not as advanced as you think you are, and two, you could be so much further along if you actually had a little empathy and thought of somebody other than yourself for a minute. And... Because, again, all of this is written from Harry's point of view, who is a victim of abuse himself, as well as a C student at best. (laughs) Anything that requires him having to put in additional intellectual work is written off. Wow. Okay, Alex. I just really want you to know how much we appreciate you coming here and helping us so that we can do the intellectual work that Harry certainly doesn't. Talking to us about critical race theory has been so illuminating and so helpful. You are a true Ravenclaw, and thank you so much for helping us out. (laughs) 
Thank you, witches, for joining us for episode 23 of Witch Please. You can find the rest of our episodes by heading over to notsorryworks.com or ohwitchplease.ca or, of course, wherever podcasts are found. If you want to hang out with us more, we're on Twitter and Instagram at ohwitchplease. Kay Alex, where can people find you if they want to know more about your work? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at kalex, K-A-L-E-X is I-S, right, W-R-I-T-E. And you can also find my essay, My Minister Been Black, uh, an analysis of Hermione Granger's Blackness on blackgirlscreate.org. And you can also... Uh, hang out with me and talk to me about fandom and other things as a member of Fandom Forward, as well as encouraging you to submit and pre-order our issue seven of Wizards in Space magazine, which you can find us on Instagram and Twitter. Which Please is produced in partnership with Not Sorry and distributed by Acast. Special thanks to Not Sorry for having us and to our wonderful new coach. Thanks, coach. Thanks, coach. If you're into the podcast, why don't you let us know by dropping a review on Apple Podcasts? At the end of every episode, we'll shout out all of you who left us a five-star review. So you've got to review us if you want to hear me feign dignity while trying to say your usernames aloud. Thanks this week to Claire the Teddy Bear and Just Another BTM. (laughs) Is it like Just Another Bottom? I feel that. I don't know what a BTM is, but I hope it's a bottom. If you want to hear even more from us, don't forget to head over to patreon.com slash please to check out the many exciting forms of bonus content, including our new prefix tier. Enamel pins are shipping and beginning to arrive. You don't want to be left out of this cool pin club. On our next episode, we're continuing our discussion of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. But until then... Later, witches!